you got your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to that little book in the Old Testament, Nehemiah. Nehemiah. And uh, so, I know most of you don't live in my world, so let me explain a little bit how this happens. Uh, you know, months ahead, we begin to think, and sometimes years ahead. In fact, one of the studies I want to do, hopefully in 2021, is going to be a study of the book of Hebrews. It's been kind of percolating for about a year and a half. Um, and still not exactly sure when we're going to do it. But, you know, so six months, eight months, nine months, sometimes a year ahead, I begin to kind of think. And then, and part of what you got to do then is plan out weeks because there, you know, there are holidays, there are, you know, things happen. And so we had Philemon, I got thinking about doing Nehemiah, I laid this all out. This is how it was going to work, so many get us right up to Christmas. And uh, so the first week, of course, was introduce Nehemiah, talk about visions, visions that God put on our life. I did that two weeks ago. And then the next weekend, Jamie was here talking about how do you know if the vision is from God? Because you, you look at, uh, you know, you lean into Jesus through prayer and fasting. You're waiting on him, listening for that. You're looking for open doors. And then today, we're going to talk, chapter 3, strategy. Right? Because this is the cool thing you see about Nehemiah is he had a plan. He's a planner. I love that idea. And I'm not exactly sure when. I don't know if it's when I was listening uh, to the sermon last weekend or if it was Tuesday. We're flying back. And so Tuesday's usually my study day. So I kind of use the time on the airplane to begin to. And I'm, I keep going towards strategy. And God just keeps stopping my heart and saying, no, I need you to talk about this idea of waiting. And I thought, okay, well, I can work that into the first part. And uh, so I kept working on it. And it, it just would not come. So here's the thing. Somebody's here this weekend that is struggling with waiting on God. You're getting frustrated. You're beginning to think like God is, is maybe being silent. And so I just need you to know this is for you, Right? And if you're not that person, at the end of this, you go, why on God's green earth did he talk about this? Come back next week, we'll talk strategy. That'll be for you, right? But I've entitled this, Don't Waste the Wait. Don't Waste the Wait. So if you got it, your Bibles, I'm just going to pull off of this idea that Jamie mentioned last week, chapter 2, verse 1. It came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. And he made the point that if you go back to chapter 1, uh, verse 1, he talks about the month of Kislev. So this is a four-month interval that this has been percolating. Four months from the time when God began to kind of lay it on his heart to when now something begins to move. I would actually argue with you, and if you were here two, two weeks ago, I even made this point. I think it's been percolating longer than that. Because you go back 14 years is when Ezra left to go rebuild the temple. And then after rebuilding the temple and getting the sacrifices going, he began to try to rebuild the walls at that time. But because of the enemies of Israel, they appealed to Artaxerxes, he put a stop to it. Nehemiah most likely was around at that point. I think this has been a growing concern. I think that's even why when you see in chapter 1, his brother and some others come back to Jerusalem... That he's quizzing them, he's asking them about the welfare of the people in Jerusalem because I think this is something that God has been percolating in his heart for a while. So here's the question I want to answer today. 
Why does God put a burden on your heart, put a vision in your soul, and then make you wait? Michael, have you experienced this? He was in high school, and God put a burden in his heart about planting a church. It's been a journey. Why the wait? And to understand, I think, why God makes us wait, you, you have to go back to this very basic idea that I don't know that a lot of us grasp. And it's this. That God is most concerned. In fact, the way I would put it, but it's not really great English, God is way more concerned about who you are becoming than what you're doing. God's concern for us, his, his greatest desire for us is not what we do for him, but it's what we're becoming in him. This is a fundamental truth, and it runs kind of contrary to nature, because we are all about, we're all about achievement. Most of us see our own value and our own worth in what we're able to achieve. Uh, you know, we Especially in America, the rugged individualist, right, you know? And that's the problem. What, sometimes our strength is also our weakness. I will tell you it is this idea of individual achievement, this idea of trusting in ourselves that God is in trouble back in the garden, right? Because God had said, don't eat of that tree. And we go, hey, you know, it looks good to us. Let's, let's go on our way. We trusted in ourselves to have a better plan. And it created a huge problem and the fall came and then we who were to be the image bearers of God uh, instead of reflecting compassion we reflected hatred and instead of reflecting mercy we 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 projected hardness instead of showing holiness we we lived in sin what I'm going to argue to you is that the whole reason Jesus came and died on the cross for us was that it's about restoring the image of Christ in us. You know, we, we get focused on he came to save us so that we could all go to heaven. And certainly that was a part of it, right? The redemption of the body. But I would remind you today that if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, all of our redemption was purchased on the cross, Right? But you only experience part of it today. And it's not the body. That doesn't happen until either Jesus comes back or we go home. But the part of the redemption that you have already experienced is the redemption of your heart, the redemption of your soul. If a man is in Christ, he is a new creature, right? Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that we were buried with him in baptism, and now we are raised in newness of life. Why? Because God's most concerned about who we are on the inside, that we are his image bearers. That's why a verse that we often, probably the verse that we put on the screen more than any other verse here is Romans 8.29. This is his plan. This is his vision for us. For those who he foreknew, he predestined what? That they would become conformed to the image of Christ. That you and I, as the image bearers of Jesus, would reflect him. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 puts it like this. 
But we all with unveiled face, the whole idea of unveiled face is because now we know Jesus, we know truth. Beholding isn't a mirror. We don't see him eye to eye today. We see him through his word. It mirrors it to us. But notice what's happening. Our being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Folk, what you got to understand is that as the image bearers of God, what we are like on the inside is of first importance to him. That's his chief concern. That, that is, is at the heart of, of all that goes on in our life. In fact, think about, think about Jesus with the Pharisees, right? Matthew 23. They, they had all these good works. And you know, what does he say? He says, you, you spend all this time cleaning the outside of the cup, and the inside of the cup is filthy, don't worry about the outside. Clean the inside. And then he looks at him and says, you, you're, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. He says, you, you tied mint and dill, these little herbs, but you've neglected the weightier things, the important things, the things of mercy and compassion and justice, the things that come from your heart. That's his concern. And so ultimately when you think about what God is doing with us, it is about creating in us that image of Christ that we would truly be his image bearers. So think about this. God's vision for you, not, not the vision that he's giving you for a burden. No, 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 no. His burden for you, his vision of what he's trying to accomplish is that you and I would become more like Jesus. So the burdens and the visions along our path that he brings into our life are his tools to accomplish that. Do, do, do you get that? Does that make sense? It's the things that he's doing, he's giving us to, to be impassioned about this so that he can use this to help us make make us more like Christ. And so that's why waiting becomes such an important part of the journey. Now, for those of you that you know, are around here, you know, I, I try to be as transparent as possible. So here's a moment of transparency. I hate waiting. It just does not go into my personality. Uh, I hate waiting at the grocery store. I found myself at Safeway this week. I'm actually walking and counting the number of grocery things that they have in their carts to try to pick the, 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 you know, the shortest line, right? Uh, but then you always forget to figure in how fast the person's actually dinging the thing is what really is doing it. So I ended up having to change lanes like three times. I just, I don't like to wait. And I'm going to tell you that from my experience, waiting on God is one of the hardest things you do when you follow Jesus. Because he puts a burden in your heart. He, he stirs this, what I always like to think of, this, um, this holy discontent. You can see what could be. I can remember when we first came to Desert Springs and, and uh, it was... Uh, uh, you, you know, it, it was this building, and I've told you this before, and the building was important because probably without the building, we wouldn't have fought so hard to, to, to make it all work. 
But this was like the ugliest building in the most warm place. You could write a book about where not to put a church by where this was. And, uh, and, and I can remember during that time, I, you know, I'm trying to figure out, okay, we have 50 paid parking spots, and we could seat about 125, and then we had these two houses, and we had this much square foot for kids. And I remember working it all out on paper, you know, how many services and how many people we could get in, and then what kind of staff we would need to be able to support that, and how many people we would need to actually fund that, right? And then when you start looking at ratios of giving per person, and I've got it all on a yellow legal pad, right? It's strategy. It's why I'm looking forward to next week. That's how my mind works. And, and, and I remember actually walking over there and showing it to God because it didn't work. And I remember, you know, I don't hear the audible voice of God, wish I did, but you know when you know when God speaks to you. And it's just, Steve, that's my problem, not yours. You just do what I ask you to do. And so we went into this knowing that God was going to move us. It just, it, it, it was going to happen. And for the next nine years, it didn't happen. I remember in 2000, I don't know if you remember this one, we got a call one Tuesday. We were particularly going through a difficult time as a church, some things that happened, and, and I got a call one Tuesday morning out of the blue from a, from a church that, hey, would you want to sell? I thought, man, this is it. Five years we've waited. This is the moment. We got together as a leadership team. We begin to talk, and, you know, man, this is what we'll do, and we, you know, and within a week and a half, it went away, never to be heard of again. We ended up waiting another four years. It's hard. It's hard. But here's the thing. I think if you look, what you begin to see that God has a pattern. It doesn't happen with everyone, but man, it's often in Scripture. Where God puts a burden on someone, a vision on someone, they kind of launch into it. Then he sets them on the side for a while before he eventually brings them back to it. Now, of course, the, probably the best example I could give you that is uh, Moses, right? So Moses, who grew up in Pharaoh's household, but God had put a heart for his people, delivering his people. So at 40 years of age, he tries to deliver them. He ends up killing an Egyptian, right? That didn't go so well. So now he's out in the wilderness for another 40 years until God shows up now at the burning bush and says, okay, now's the time. And now he goes and he leads them. You see it again even with Joshua. So Joshua, who ends up being his assistant, we kind of first meet him when Moses is sending 12 spies into the land. Remember, Joshua's one of the 12, and he and Caleb went in. They came back and said, God's going to give us the land. Let's go. You know, let's go conquer the land. The other 10 said no. They followed the other 10. We really don't see Joshua again for another 38 years. We don't see much of him. Until now they're crossing over the Jordan River to go into the land. And guess who's leading them? It's Joshua. Think about King David. A lot of times people forget this. King David, you remember he was actually anointed the king of Israel before he ever killed Goliath? Remember that Samuel, God had rejected Saul. God sent Samuel to Jesse and he brings out all his sons, right? And they finally, no, no, none of these are it. Do you have another? Yeah, he's the youngest. How old was he? We don't know. He's out watching the sheep. Eight, ten, twelve, maybe fifteen. He comes in, he anoints him the king. There's the vision. And shortly after that, he goes and kills Goliath. 
stepping into it. He actually now becomes a leader of some of the army. But then what happens? Saul begins to chase him. He does not become the king of Israel until he's 30 years of age. And even then it's only over Judah. It's not for another seven years after that over the entire kingdom. Let me throw one out else out to you. I mentioned this one to Tammy. She, she hesitated. So let's see if I can convince you. Jesus. So remember, we read about the birth of Jesus, and the next time we see him again is what? When he's 12 years old. And remember, he doesn't go back with the caravan on the way after the feast. They can't find him. So they go back to, to Jerusalem. Where do they find him? They find him in the temple. I must be about my father's business. And yet now we don't see him again for another 18 years until he's 30 years of age. This is a pattern. And here's the reason why. It's during the times of waiting that God is in the process of refining us, of preparing us, of developing us for what he has coming he bursted in our hearts. But as again, remember, he's more concerned about who we're becoming, right, than what we're doing. So it's in this time of waiting that he's working on us and preparing us for, for this time. The, the best illustration I could give you is one that my dad used all the time, and I loved it. And it had to do with the building of the temple. What's really interesting is in 1 Kings, when Solomon built the temple it says and the house of the lord while it was being built was built of stone prepared at the quarry there was neither hammer nor axe nor iron tool heard in the house before it was built so the whole idea was when the stones got there they were so perfect they were so square they were so finished they just slid in now what you don't understand and why hopefully someday you'll get to go to israel with us because one of the things we do not everybody goes to go with us uh we go down into the rabbi tunnel, which is right there by the wailing wall, where they've actually dug down to the time of David and Solomon. And you see these stones that are the foundation of the temple wall, because the temple was built on a hill, so they had to build it up. And these things are mammoth. They, they, some of them, they say, they anticipate weigh 570 tons. And what's fascinating is they are perfect, even dressed. Why? Because in the quarry, in the quarry, they were chiseled. They were hammered. They were scraped. They were polished. So that by the time they got to the temple site, they were perfect. Folk, the time of waiting it's the time that we're in the quarry. It's when God is knocking off the rough edges of our life. Those areas in our life that we're not like Jesus and he, he's working on them. And it's in that, that struggling, that frustration, that leaning into Jesus, fasting, praying, waiting, looking that he's working on this. And I can remember in my own life, and I've shared something. It's one of the problems of being a pastor at some place for 26 years. You've heard all my stories before, but they are my stories, Right? And so for me, when I think back to the times of waiting, I think 
of when, you know, when I was in high school, I, I loved and, and God blessed and I had opportunities to go and to preach and do youth retreats and youth camps and do all this kind of stuff. And it was awesome. And then I went off to Bible college, right? And I'm learning all this stuff and I can hardly wait to use it. And it's like God set me on the shelf. I got no opportunities to preach. I got no opportunities to do anything but the little Christian work assignments that were there. And I thought, God, what are you doing in this frustration, this holy discontent? Why have you set me on the shelf? And the reason he did was because there was stuff in my heart that he needed to be working with. And I remember during that time specifically, one of the big questions that I had to wrestle with was why why did I want to do what I wanted to do? Why did I want to preach? Oh, Jesus, it's because of you, right? Okay, all right. That's cool. What if I don't want you to preach? You going to be okay with that? Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, it's my gifting, right? It's my calling. Yeah, but, but Steve, what if, if this is all about you just love me, what if all I want you to do is sweep floors for me? Are you going to do that and be happy with that? But, but Jesus, I want to stand before big crowds. I want to tell the gospel. I want to move Christians to follow after you. Yeah, but what if I just want you to pastor a little church down in the Smoky Mountains that has 10 people on a Sunday? Are you going to do that and be happy? Is this about you or is this about me? What's significant? I told you we came to Desert Springs and, man, I, I had a vision this big. In fact, for those of you that were around back then, we, it was so big I had to put it in a trifold brochure, right? And it had, it had land and it had buildings and it had programs and it was, I hope none of those are, still exist. And quite honestly, over the next nine years, first nine years I hear, it was, it was blood, sweat, and tears for every family who visited us who, who ended up staying. And God knocked the stuffing of, out of all that. You know why? Because Steve needed some lessons in humility. Steve needed to make sure priorities were, were really in line because he knew what was coming down the line. And would I be the person that could lead and do that well then? Folks, that's, that's what God does in these moments. The wait, don't waste the waiting. And if I could share maybe what I would say three quick things that I've learned in these waiting periods. This is kind of like Paul saying, I, not the Lord, right? So this is me, not necessarily scripture. But three things that I, I've learned, number one, is these wait periods in your life are just as important to God as the times that you will see success in whatever vision he's given you. Why? Because he's not so concerned about what you do for him. What he's concerned about is who you're becoming. And it's in this, these moments when he's making you become, he's knocking off the rough edges. He's, he's smoothing it down. He's, he's getting you ready to better reflect Jesus. And ultimately, that is the most important piece. Secondly, is that the ministry that happens during the wait is just as important to God as the vision being realized. I can remember, you know, back when we started at Desert Springs and there were 55 of us. Folk, I, you know, and, and you all don't understand. I mean, 55 of us, that's men, women, children. I mean, we wouldn't have had this many people in the middle section in our entire church. I dreamt of days like this, right? 
I, I dreamt of days of having a bigger place and more services and seeing people come to faith in Christ. And, 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 and yet, those days, that ministry is just as important. And what God did in it. And I think back to the days at Moody and all I had was my little Christian work assignment that we did once a week. And we'd go and do after school club. And, you know, on a good day, we might have two or three kids that showed up. That's just as important because you don't know what God is doing in, in, in those things. And, and what, I, what concerns me is that sometimes God puts a burden on someone's heart and they're waiting because they're seeing it as size and scope. And so they're doing nothing. They're not serving Jesus. I heard a, I heard a Christian artist once. He He's in the Christian music field, really well known if I mention his name. And he says, I often get asked by young singers, right, uh, what do I do to, to, to get into the ministry? Because I want to sing to people, I want to bless their heart, I want to tell them about Jesus. And he says, I tell every single one of them the same thing, go home and sing at your church. They say, well, my church is only 25 people. It doesn't matter. Go sing. Get, sing every opportunity to give. Or my church is only 100 people. It's okay. God knows your phone number. You just serve the Lord where you are today. And let him take care of the rest. And the third thing is that the vision you have today, God will use to prepare you for the next one he's going to give you along the, along the road. You know, very few times is the vision, the burden that God puts on our heart for a lifetime. It's typically for a season. Um, you know, for Nehemiah, depending on, you know, if, if you, you go with me and this percolated for 10, 12 years. Or if you just want to limit it to that four months. Okay, so it's a couple year piece. By the time you get to the end of Nehemiah, the walls are built. The, the, that vision is gone. But what's interesting is Nehemiah has a brand new one. And it is speaking into the lives and the spiritual health of Israel. That's built upon not only what he learned. But the respect and the leadership and, and the platform that God gave him during this. But the vision is quite different. And only God knows what's down the road and what God has for you the next time. And so be patient because God is not just developing you for this. He's developing you for things that you can't even see. So what I'm trying to say is this. If you're that person who's here today frustrated, man, embrace the weight. That's hard. I hate it. But embrace the weight. God is in control. He's the one who knows all about your vision. He gave it to you. He knows right where you are. And the thing is, he is not silent. He is working. He's the one who's causing this holy discontent. Why? So that you will lean into him. So that you will seek him. So that you, he will be able to accomplish in your heart that you are becoming more like Jesus. I love this verse in 1 Thessalonians. I think I actually became a favorite of mine when, back in those days when I was at Moody. And I felt like God had put me on the shelf. It's faithful as he who calls you and he will bring it to pass. I actually like the old King James better. That's how I learned it. Faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. Walk in faith. Trust God what he's going to do. Secondly, serve the Lord today. Even if it's not the size, the scope, even if it's not the heart of your vision, do what you can to serve Jesus today. God, 
God is at work. You trust him, so take the opportunities that you have today to serve the Lord. He's going to bless it. And lastly, just never forget of what great value you are. You know, sometimes I, you know, Christians struggle with, well, I don't know, I'm not, you know, because we look at people who supposedly do great things, right? And God must really love them. No, 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 no. God loves you. He loved you even when you were in your sin, right? He can't love you anymore. You are very special. It's not about the things you do for him. What he is most concerned about is that you and I would become more like Jesus. And where that all starts is by being born into the family of God, putting your trust in Jesus for your salvation. That's where it begins. If you've not done it, that's where you need to start.